Welcome to the Retirement Risk Show, the best retirement interviews and advice with Dave Hall. Learn strategies to help you reduce and even eliminate the risks facing your retirement. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name's Dave Hall. I'm your host. Very excited to be back with you once again, talking about that longest period of self-imposed unemployment most of you will have in your lifetime. Could be 10 years, could be 20. Heck, it might even be 30 or 40. It is what we call retirement. If you're looking to get safely through, all you have to do is go to my website, retirementriskadvisors.com. Here we have access to our education tools, to our planning resources, get access to my calendar, whatever we can do to help you try to figure the risks out that you're going to face during those years. Very excited for today's show. I've got one of my heroes with me today. Not very often that I get the opportunity to not only interview, but to have with me someone that I've followed for a number of years, that I taught a lot of the concepts that he teaches, not only in books that he's written, but just from shows and other stuff that he's done. I've got with me today, David Walker. He is in the CPA Hall of Fame. He also was a comptroller general, the CPA of CPAs for a decade, written books. Uh, I could go on and on about what he's done, but I'd rather turn it over to him and let him get started into the show. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Good to be with you. So Dave, this is quite an experience for me because I, I've read your books. I've followed your, your materials for quite some time. You've been a strong believer that we as a country aren't necessarily heading the right direction fiscally. Talk a little bit about uh, kind of maybe your work and what's got you to this point in your career. Well, I'll give you an executive summary. I graduated with an accounting degree, undergraduate. And why accounting? Because accounting is how you keep score and how you keep score matters, no matter what you do in life. And you can always get a job with a good accounting degree. I started with Price Waterhouse, uh, then went with Coopers and Librand, initially in audit, then human capital uh, management, running the firm as a business. I then went into uh, recruiting and executive search. Uh, I then ran two federal agencies, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation and the Employee Benefit Security Administration, pensions and healthcare, if you will. Uh, I then became a direct admission partner with Arthur Anderson, and I ran their global human capital strategy practice, which also included some of the issues that we're going to talk about. I then became Comptroller General of the United States for 10 years, which is Auditor General, Chief Accountability Officer uh, of the United States, Head of the Government Accountability Office. And while I was with Anderson, I was also a trustee, one of two for Social Security and Medicare, public trustees. Then I ran two not-for-profits, the uh, Peter G. Peterson Foundation, the Comeback America Initiative. Then I was with PricewaterhouseCoopers as a senior strategic advisor. And then I was a professor at the Naval Academy. So you know, I've had a very diverse background. I've been fortunate to run organizations in the public, private, not-for-profit sectors of the economy. Uh, and as you mentioned, I'm in the Accounting Hall of Fame. I'm in the Audit Hall of Fame. But most people don't know what those are and where they are. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> At least I got to but, but they are small groups. Uh, you know, there's 670,000 of us out there. And I got looking at the list. There's probably like 100 of you that are, that are actually in the Hall of Fame. So it's something to be recognized. And for our listeners that are CPAs will know that. I have a ton of questions for you today. So I'd like to get started. Really going back to the first book that I'm familiar with you wrote called Come Back and Marry. Okay, you may have had books before that. But in that book, you talked a lot about the fiscal situation of the country and how we had a math problem. And one of your recommendations back then was, Hey, we may have to double taxes over time if we really want to get our fiscal house in order. What are your thoughts today as you look at where tax rates are and the, the debt and where we're heading? Is that still something that you believe has got to happen? Well, Comeback America was written in 2010, 
and it was a national bestseller. And uh, basically, at that point in time, we clearly had a structural fiscal imbalance, an imbalance between our projected revenues and expenses. Frankly, we're in much worse shape today than we were back then. And what I said back then, and it's still relevant today, is if the way that we're going to solve our structural imbalance is just through taxing more, which is not what I advocate, and frankly, not what I believe ultimately will happen, then we would have to double taxes in order to make the numbers work. You know, I kid saying that there's a new four-letter word in fiscal policy, you know, fiscal policy being tax and spending, and the word is math. The math just doesn't come close to working. There's some people say, well, we can grow our way out of this problem. No, we can't. They would fail math. You would have to have double-digit real GDP growth for decades. Hasn't happened, not going to happen. And, and as I said, Dave, we're in much worse shape today than we were in 2010, which means we've got to do more, less transition time, overtime. And you doubled down with your new book, America 2040, Still a Superpower, a great book I've read. I've gone through there. In there, you talk about many things that need to be changed. Are you seeing any positive movement? Are you seeing some things that, yeah, we're heading the right direction here? Or are we still just kind of going backwards with it all? Well, importantly, the new book has a question mark at the end of the title. It's American 2040, still a superpower, question mark. And the answer is yes, if we make some tough choices, and no, if we don't. And it basically deals not just with our fiscal challenge, but also our national security challenges, which are interrelated. We have gotten worse since 2010. The only thing that I've seen recently that gives me a little bit of hope is that the new Republican-controlled House has made it very clear that they want to stop the bleeding with regard to excess spending. They'd like to do much more than that. They'd like to be able to cut back on spending and do a number of other things. But we also have to keep in mind that, you know, the House can propose things, but ultimately the Senate's got to go along and the president's got to, got to sign it. And the House is controlled by the Republicans. The Democrats control the Senate and Biden is a Democrat. For the record, I'm a political independent. I'm right of center with regard to economic issues and probably in the middle on, on social issues, which I think probably where most Americans are. So I'm happy that the new Republican Congress is talking about stopping the bleeding and they want to try to do some things to get control of spending. But I'm also skeptical because the Senate is still controlled by the Democrats and the president happens to be the Democratic Party. Yeah, not that easy to move that ship anymore when we look at all the controversy going on out there. One of the things I would like to address here, as you mentioned, it being a, a national security issue, our fiscal irresponsibility. Can you talk a little more about that? I mean, we see it from accountant side that, yeah, the math doesn't add up. We're going to have some financial issues. But where does the security side come in? Well, there are four things that it takes to be a superpower in today's world, in my view. You have to have global economic power, global diplomatic influence, global military capabilities, and global cultural influence. Since World War II, we're the only country until recently that met those criteria. The Soviet Union never met it because it never met the global economic power and it never met the global cultural influence. Yes, they have more nuclear weapons than we do, but how many times can you destroy each other? I mean, yeah, it's, it doesn't make sense. But today we face a rise in China uh, and China does have global economic power. They do have global diplomatic influence. They don't have a global military capability yet, but they're dedicated to getting one. And they do have global cultural influence. And so we have to recognize that reality. I mean, you know, at the end of World War II, we were over 50% of global GDP. We were it. And now we're about 22% of global GDP. If the leading indicator on the way up is a superpower, 
And the leading indicator on the way down as a superpower is economic power. Because if you're strong economically, you'll have diplomatic influence. You'll be able to fund a strong military capability uh, and people will want to emulate you from a cultural standpoint. But if you lose that economic power, then that is the leading indicator to losing in the other areas as well. We've seen that as far back as Rome. We need to learn lessons from the past and, and, and from others and, and prepare for the future. Uh, and the truth is, if you can't put your finances in order, you're going to lose economic power over time. Yeah, the government doesn't work much different than our households, in my opinion. Uh, we can't run over budget indefinitely in our homes without having problems. And look at the government. Obviously, they've got more tools to bail them out, but uh, we see a lot of issues. We can't print money either, Dave. All that money is worth less and less if we keep on on the path that we're dealing with. Yeah, and that was one of the things I had here, modern monetary theory. Uh, what, what are some of your thoughts with that from what you've done from a research side? Well, first, let's talk about what modern monetary theory is. It is a progressive monetary theory that asserts that deficits and debt don't matter as long as you can borrow in your own reserve currency unless and until you have excess inflation. There's just a few problems with it. Number one, it's contrary to long-established economic principles. Number two, it's contrary to history. Number three, it's based upon a flawed comparison to Japan. And probably most importantly, we now have excess inflation has been driven primarily because of out-of-control spending, and a loose monetary policy, which actually enabled, rightly or wrongly, that uh, out-of-control spending and facilitated the short-term adoption of modern monetary theory. But now we have excess inflation, which I think has shown that that theory is fundamentally flawed, and hopefully we'll never go back to that again. Do you see long-term consequences to this? I mean, is there sometime between 2040? I mean, you say, okay, at that point, we could really have some issues. 2030, other periods of time that we may need to be looking at of potentially having some real financial hiccups? Well, the longer we wait, the higher the risk of a financial crisis and the higher risk of loss of confidence in the dollar. If there's a loss of confidence in the dollar, then what will end up happening is, is that we'll have to start paying a lot more for borrowing. We'll end up undercutting our competitive advantage in international trade, and we'll end up losing the effectiveness of our ability to impose uh, economic sanctions. Uh, you know, there are alliances against U.S. interests today. One clear example is China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and certain other countries have aligned against U.S. interests economically, diplomatically, militarily, and culturally. Uh, and one of the things that they are trying to achieve, in particular, China, Russia, and Iran, is an alternative currency. And, you know, one of the reasons that we've been able to get away with what we have for so long is because we have the world's, uh, you know, dominant global reserve currency. But there's no guarantee that we'll keep that forever if we don't end up getting our act together. In addition to that, Medicare Part A, which is the hospital insurance trust fund, is expected to go to zero by 2028. When that happens, you got a 10 to 15 percent gap between revenues and expenditures. Something's got to be done to close that gap. Social Security, combined Social Security, which means the retirement program and disability, uh, that goes to zero by 2034. When that goes to zero, you've got a 22 to 25 percent gap. It's got to be closed. And so those are kind of action forcing events. You know, there, there's no way they're going to allow us to go over that clip. But the problem is, is that they're just two pieces of a much bigger puzzle. 
And ultimately, we've got to deal with the entire challenge, not just pieces of it. And do you think with these two specific programs, I know one of your recommendations, these programs do have to be changed Mm -hmm. to be able to stabilize themselves. And I think any of us that do any research at all realize that. Do you see them still being there in the form that they're in? Do Do you expect these programs to still be available 20 years from now or 30 years from now and that those who are not yet in retirement can count on these programs for their future? Well, let's talk about Social Security first and then we can go to healthcare. Social Security as of September 30, 2021, which is the latest audited financial statements, had an unfunded obligation of about $20 trillion. That's how much money you'd have to have today invested at treasury rates to close the gap between projected revenues and expenses over the next 75 years. You know, the frustrating thing is, is that Social Security is probably the easiest thing to reform. And why do I say that? Because seniors think that they're going to get taken advantage of. There are other words that I could use, but I won't. And young people don't think they're going to get it. And they're both wrong. Uh, We're going to have to make reforms in the program to make it solvent, sustainable, and secure. But we can do it in a way that will exceed the expectation of every generation because seniors are not going to be greatly affected. And young people are going to be affected, no question. The younger you are, the more you're going to be affected. But if you don't think you're going to get anything, then you're going to get more than you think you're going to get, right? So the kinds of things that I see happening is – a further gradual increase in the normal retirement age. We've already increased it to 67. It's likely to go up to 69 to 70 over a number of years, okay? A significant increase in the taxable wage base cap, which is what we did in 1983, the last time we reformed Social Security, but not an increase in the tax rate because that's a very regressive tax and most Americans pay more money in payroll taxes than they do income taxes. You know, I see the benefit structure changing somewhat to where you give somewhat higher replacement rate for lower income retirees and somewhat less of a replacement rate for upper middle and upper income, but don't turn it into a welfare program. Taking a look at the cost of living index to to make it more reflective of, of cost of living for seniors rather than the population as a whole. I mean, those would be some examples of things that you could do. Another thing that you could consider is the changing the investment strategy right now to the extent that you have any surplus in Social Security, it's got to be invested solely in U.S. government bonds. They might be safe, but they don't generate much of a return, if you will. So, you know, some combination of these factors, you know, can solve our problem. But when you get to healthcare, Medicare alone is two and a half times greater than the Social Security challenge. And Medicare is one piece of a much bigger healthcare challenge, which includes Medicaid, which includes, you know, private sector, public sector, not-for-profit sector insurance. Healthcare is roughly 20% of our economy and growing, and yet we get below average outcomes for an industrialized nation. So that system has to be dramatically transformed, not nip and tuck, reconstructive surgery and installments uh, over time. And do you have any recommendations on your end of what should happen there? And any thoughts that you'd say, hey, if they would do some of these things, it would help us get into a better position. I think that we need to have a conversation that we've never had before. And that is, and I'll be careful here, how much universal health care, yes, I believe there ought to be universal health care, how much is appropriate, affordable, and sustainable, and that ought to be provided through a universal, publicly financed, private sector delivered health care system. And my personal view is, is that that those would be things like preventative and wellness and catastrophic protection. Those are in our broad-based societal interests. Those represent a legitimate human need, not an unlimited human want. 
And then what we ought to do is figure out how are we going to finance that, provide mechanisms where employers, unions, uh, industry associations, professional associations, whatever, can provide supplements to that should they so desire in order to attract and retain people. But the government has way overpromised on healthcare. We also need to consider the fact that we can't write a blank check on this, that there needs to be a budget, that we need to be paying more for uh, outcomes rather than activities, that we need malpractice reform, that we should not allow advertising of prescription drugs on television and on radio. That drives consumption. And fortunately, one thing positive that has happened within the last few months is Medicare now has the ability to negotiate prescription drug prices. Veterans Administration has had it for a number of years, but Medicare couldn't. Starting in 2026, they will be able to, and that will obviously help. More than 50% of CPAs will run out of money in retirement, and this number is projected to grow because of risks like inflation, increased longevity, and rising healthcare costs. Retirement Risks Advisors has the perfect solution to help CPAs make their money last as long as they do. Learn more by signing up for our flagship webinar, Getting Safely Through Retirement. In this webinar, we share the top 10 financial risks CPAs will face in retirement and what can be done to reduce or eliminate each risk. To get started, visit retirementriskadvisors.com safe. One of the classes that I teach is inflation and the rising cost of healthcare. It's a CPE course and I always get amazing feedback on it because it's so shocking. Even teaching the class, it's like the problems we can have in the future for especially retirees, you better be sure you've got a budget item for that. It's going to be an issue going into those retirement years. Well, people are going to end up spending a lot more in healthcare than they expect. Okay. You know, to me, one of the reasons we have a problem in healthcare is I lay out in the book you know, I think you have to have three things in order to have a successful and sustainable system, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, whatever. Okay. You've got to have properly designed incentives that encourage people to do the right thing, discourage them from doing the wrong thing. You have to have adequate transparency to provide reasonable assurance they will. And you have to have appropriate accountability if they don't. Well, on healthcare, on K through 12, immigration system, and even to a certain extent, our tax system, we're zero for three. That's called a strikeout. So it's no wonder that we have a problem. That's why we have to go back to the fundamentals and be able to go back to basic principles as we're making these reforms, because otherwise we're not going to solve the problem. Dave, I'd like to talk a little bit about taxes. Uh, Obviously, that's a big impact of many CPAs' lives and all of our lives because we pay them. Mm -hmm. One of the recommendations you had in your book is to try to make the tax code more inclusive. You know, when we look at it, that oftentimes you've got the upper income earners that are paying X amount, and maybe you've got lower income earners that are actually getting money back from the system because of all the extra benefits and incentives that are there. Any take there on recommendations of what could be done to improve the system for all, to make it more fair? Well, first, in order to put our finances in order, we want pro-growth policies that will help to grow the denominator of debt to GDP faster than the numerator. We also are going to have to restructure our mandatory spending programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, to make them solvent, sustainable, and secure. That means significantly reducing the projected spending on those programs, making sure that they are sustainable. We're going to have to reprioritize and reduce discretionary spending as compared to the status quo, including defense. And there's plenty of opportunity to save money in defense without compromising national security. I'm on the defense business board. But we're going to have to have more revenues. There's no way that we're going to be able to solve the problem without more revenues. The problem 
is primarily going to be solved through constraining spending, but we've got to have more revenues. The question is, how do you get them, right? My view is, is that we have way too many people that pay no income taxes whatsoever. Uh, in any given year, 40 to 50% of individuals who file tax returns pay zero income tax. And of that, about 20% of all the people that file federal income tax returns get a rebate because of refundable tax credits, whether it's the earned income tax credit, child care, whatever it might be. So we need more people paying something. At the same point in time, the wealthy need to pay a higher effective tax rate than they're paying right now. There's lots of different ways to get there. The other thing that we have to do is we have to dramatically streamline and simplify our tax code. It's an abomination. And the irony is, is that we have some tax preferences in our tax code, that being deductions, exemptions, credits, and exclusions that actually work against desirable public policy. For example, let's take health care. The number one tax preference in the Internal Revenue Code is the fact that individuals do not pay income taxes or payroll taxes on employer-provided and paid health care. It costs us about $600 billion a year. And what does that do? It disconnects individuals from the true cost of health care, and it ends up fueling additional health care costs. So one of the things that we have to do is we're going about making changes, whether it be on the spending side, the regulatory side, or the tax side. We need to understand what goals we're trying to achieve, and we need to make sure that the instruments of federal policy are working consistent with those goals rather than in conflict with those goals. From an economic standpoint, the best tax policy is probably a progressive consumption tax that ends up providing a rebate for people at or near the poverty level. That, that's probably the most economically efficient, administrable, and enforceable system. But there are lots of political challenges to get there. Yeah, and that was actually my next question. It was regarding a consumption tax. I know it, it was part of the negotiation, I believe, with the Republicans here to get it presented uh, to the House, whether it goes anywhere. But did want to get your feelings on that. Is there hope for a consumption tax at some point? Well, the fear is, is they'll just layer it on top of our current system rather than, than trying to engage in much more transformational reform and see how we can go primarily to a consumption tax. Okay, that's a progressive consumption tax, but considers that the people of means, whether it be income and wealth, end up spending a lot more money than people who don't, right? You have to somehow deal with the potential regressivity, and the way you can do that is through a refundable tax credit. Everybody pays the consumption taxes, but at a certain level of income, you end up doing a rebate at that level of income, and we can debate what that ought to be. Makes sense. So one last question I have, we're running out of time, but Roth IRAs, it's something that it seems the government's in favor of right now from a tax policy and the, the things that you know, do you see them as great tools or do you see it as something that's getting set up for failure in the future? For young people, I think you know, Roth IRAs are great. And for people my age, I mean, I have done some transfers into Roths. There are limits as to how much you can transfer. And the reason I say that is because I believe federal income tax rates will never be lower than they are right now. And in fact, contrary to what we've been taught for most of our lives, that we're going to have a lower effective tax rate when we're retired than when we were working, that may not be the case. Now, we won't have to pay Social Security and Medicare taxes in most of that time. But with regard to the income tax by itself, income tax rates are going to go up. We just don't know how much and how fast and when. But you understand why... <laughs> why the federal government adopted Roth IRAs. They adopted Roth IRAs because it accelerated revenues to the federal government. The federal government tends to be very myopic, very siloed, very short-term focused. And Roth IRAs came about 
so that they could accelerate federal income tax revenues. Because if you don't get a deduction for amounts you contribute to Roth, that means that federal income tax revenues in the short term. Yes, federal income tax revenues will be less in the future. But, you know, too many politicians, frankly, they're living for today. They're not thinking about tomorrow. And that's a big part of our problem. Yeah, absolutely. And at some point that day of reckoning is going to come. And when it does, I guess whoever's in office is going to have to deal with it all. Dave, how can our listeners get a hold of you? How can they get access to your books? Uh, I don't know if there's additional information that you share out there to help people better understand the fiscal situation we're in. Well, I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I do have a Twitter account, but you know it's a small fraction of what it used to be because I got off of Twitter for a number of years. So you can find me there. Google my name. You'll find me there. A former U.S. Comptroller General. If you're interested in the book, it's American 2040, still a superpower question mark. You can either get it online at Amazon. I self-published it, so it's just in time printing. Or you can get it through authorhouse.com. That's the uh, publisher, authorhouse.com. But if you order it, make sure you, you're getting the updated version from February of 2022. The original version came out in September of 2020. I updated it for events that happened after September of 2020. February of 2022. It's very important to get that latest version. David, thank you so much. Thank you for being on our show. Listeners, uh, take advantage of the, the education he offers through his book. Mentioned, I've read it. It was a great read. I enjoyed my time. Gave me a lot to think about. And especially as an educator who shares information on helping people get safely through retirement, so many things that really ring true to me, realizing that we do have problems, but we can get our house in order. And I wish we had time to talk about this, Dave. I know one of the things you mentioned in there is the importance of getting our own families, individually getting ourselves in order. In fact, maybe we'll take a minute here if we can. Talk a little bit about that. What can people do individually to take responsibility versus waiting until the government makes all these changes? Well, first, you need to have a budget. You know, while our financial situation is such that theoretically we don't need one, it's best practices. I lead by example. You need a budget. You need to budget for taxes. You need to budget for savings. And you need to budget for charitable contributions. You need to get out of debt as quickly as possible. Fortunately, we have zero debt and a mortgage-free home, uh, so that helps. You need to be able to think about what the future may hold with regard to what kind of benefits you're likely to get from the government with regard to Social Security and Medicare, what kind of tax rates are likely to happen in the future, and what you can do to try to plan effectively for that. You need to also think about your estate planning as well and set your goals and objectives there and make sure that you, you you take the appropriate steps in order to try to achieve those objectives. So those are just a few of the things. And and I do try to practice what I preach and lead by example in that regard, because I think that's, that's a, an important principle in order for an individual to be credible. Thank you, Dave. That's one of the reasons I respect you so much. I'm the same way. I practice what I preach. I believe in the concepts that you've talked about. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about getting safely through retirement, Go to my website, retirementriskadvisors.com. Look forward to the opportunity of working with you there. And also look forward to seeing you next week on next week's show. And that's today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to wherever you get your podcast. We come out with a new episode every Friday morning and you don't want to miss it. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That would really help us out. The Retirement Risk Show is a production of the Retirement Risk Advisors. Our show was produced by C.R. Talene and Autumn Koenig. If you're a CPA looking for more retirement education, visit retirementriskadvisors.com.